not swear. Although I joy in me, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden. Too like the lightning which just cease to be ere one can say it lightens. Sweet good night. Spud, of love, my summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. Won't thou leave me so unsatisfied? What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. I gave thee mine before that stood requested! Three podcast hosts, all more or less alike in dignity, in fair Zoom where we lay our scene. <laughs> From ancient movies break to new mutiny, where civil discussion makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these three sometimes foes, a trio of star-crossed hosts take their time, arguing their very aggressive opinions about <laughs> pop culture. Tis Becky, the podcast host most likely to be fortune's fool! Tis Seth, the host most likely to take some occasion without giving. <laughs> and tis Chris, the podcast host most likely to fear too early for my mind misgives. Some consequence yet hanging in the stars shall bitterly begin his fearful date with this night's revels and expire the term of a despised life closed in my breast <laughs> by some vile forfeit of untimely death. But he that hath the steerage of my course direct my sail on lusty gentlemen. <gasps> Roses, roses, drama desk awards. <laughs> Throwing them at you, virtually. Barely a day goes by where Chris does not unspool that whole thing at us. <laughs> <laughs> On today's episode of When We Were Young, we've decided to get literary and take a look back at the bard himself, William Shakespeare. Of course, we're doing this in the only way that would make sense for us, which means we're watching the movie instead of reading the play. <laughs> In today's episode, we'll be discussing Romeo and Juliet, the flashy 1996 adaptation directed by Baz Luhrmann. This is actually part one of what we're calling our Baz Spectacular Spectacular, as our next episode will cover the Australian director's 2001 musical melee, Moulin Rouge. All right, players, let's away. All right, guys, are you ready for Shakespeare? Yeah, we must be the only ones, you know, watching a movie instead of reading the play of Shakespeare. I think we might be inventing something <laughs> new that could be passed on maybe to high school students everywhere. <laughs> you can pick up the Cliff's Notes version of this episode in bookstores everywhere. <laughs> Before we get started talking about the actual movie du jour, I want to know, are you guys a fan of Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> Who? Whomst? <laughs> that seems like a silly question, but I'm sure there is some sort of uh, story that you can tell. <laughs> okay, I will dive into that one. Um, yes, I, I, <laughs> I think that Shakespeare is a pretty good writer. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got started early-ish on Shakespeare in seventh grade. I had a teacher who was really passionate about teaching Shakespeare, as many teachers are. It was also like my first year of uh, junior high school. So it was like, you know, really entering a whole new like adult world. And it was like jumping into this very literary thing that is not like the easiest thing to read, you know, for someone who's 13 or so. But, you know, like his passion, he made it like so fun and exciting. And he was like, he was just one of those teachers who is inspiring to you and who makes like learning fun and, you know, comes up with creative assignments. So that was a really good introduction. We read, I think, five plays that first semester. And obviously, like I kept studying a bunch of Shakespeare throughout junior high and high school. I always appreciated Shakespeare and all the kind of, especially like, it's very hard to interpret what a lot of it means, but the more that you kind of dive into the humor and the double meanings and things like that. So yeah, I will say like, I've seen Shakespeare performed a couple of times. Like I saw uh, Merchant of Venice with Al Pacino. Wow. Oh, cool. And it really helps uh, to have, you know, like it performed for you by really great actors who can do it because um, not all actors can do it or should do it. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) and um but when it's done well in a way like by an actor who can actually make it feel believable and not just like they're reciting things um yeah i love like like seeing it live i think is still the best way to do it because like it is hard like i i don't i wouldn't probably sit down and just read shakespeare myself because i think i would kind of miss a lot or you know just kind of be dense reading but when you can see it performed it really takes on um a new level Do you have a favorite play? I think probably A Midsummer Night's Dream. I remember I also like As You Like It. I really like the um, mistaken identity stuff where people are dressing as men or women or, you know, their opposite gender. And there's all kinds of confusion and layers of confusion. Um, And that's something that I've even, you know, done in my own writing, Um, not set in like Elizabethan (laughs) era. But um, (laughs) I was going to say, that's the thing that's missing from your writing, actually, is not enough like petticoats and waistcoats, mostly coats, Chris. And turning into donkeys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but just like mistaken identity is something I always find funny. um, And that Mm -hmm. is kind of the um, comedy I tend to gravitate toward. I love those kind of farces. Yeah, like I'm pretending to be someone else, like a a richer person or a poorer person or whatever. Like I always enjoy those kinds of stories. I mean, he did a bunch of those, but I know As You Like It and um, A Midsummer Night's Dream. I, I love the, you know, sort of mysticism of that one. Yeah, Chris, I've got a pretty similar story to you. I think mine might have was mine was a couple years earlier. I had an English teacher named Ms. Labello when I was in like fourth and fifth grade. And I don't know if she came up with us to teach us when I was in sixth grade or not, but she was definitely the person who introduced me to Shakespeare not just in the form of going to see his plays performed, but all, especially in terms of reading his plays. I know we also read many of his sonnets. I think they're especially beautiful, and I think it's one place where his verbal cleverness doesn't get to be too much. Like, I think it can be in his plays if you're just reading them. So yeah, I have, I definitely have Ms. Labello to thank um, for my first reading Shakespeare's work, I saw Shakespeare's plays performed throughout my life. I don't know what the first one would have been, but I definitely remember like A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Tempest, Romeo and Juliet, and Macbeth, um, and, and also Henry V, 
um, as being like five of the key kind of Shakespeare titles that that I know that I saw, that I know that I also read, and that have kind of stayed with me over the years as being like the best representatives of his work. I, I think it should be pretty obvious to anyone who appreciates language and especially like linguistic cleverness and like Chris, you brought up like kind of multiple meanings and double entendres and that kind of thing. I think anyone who appreciates language in that way has to be a fan of Shakespeare to some degree. I don't necessarily personally think his biggest strengths are in like the the storytelling and story construction. Like he he wasn't the first person to figure that those mechanics out, but the cleverness and the fun and Chris, like you were saying, the the kind of farcical kinds of comedy, I, I think are things that Shakespeare really did pioneer, like pioneering the, the actual form of like written, thought out comedy in a long form. And Shakespeare gets so much credit, <laughs> duly so. <laughs> Overrated. Well, I'll get there. <laughs> So much of the esteem for Shakespeare is based on his dramas and his tragedies and that side of it. But I do really want to kind of like emphasize the comedy that's really throughout all his works. But, you know, like that's especially part of Romeo and Juliet because it it tied in for me with Oscar Wilde, who was another writer who I started reading and getting really even more into ultimately uh, during the exact same time period that I started getting into Shakespeare. And Chris, when you were talking about the mistaken identities kind of thing, it reminded me of the importance of being earnest. That was one of the first plays that I ever read like as a play. And it was the first time that a kind of script like that ever came to my attention and really helped me understand how something that is, you know, written on the page can be hilarious and really funny and powerful and fun to read. But again, there is something that is added to it when you see it performed by great actors that can never be replaced and can never be perfectly described on the page. It was really fun, you know, kind of thinking about like my my Shakespeare history, just because that was also a focal point for me to discover good comedy writing and what I liked in terms of comedy writing. Do you have a favorite play of his? Uh, I don't really. I'm a, as okay. I've as as I've proven many many a time on this podcast, I am very bad at picking number one favorites of anything. <laughs> you just need to rank everything like I do, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I didn't know if there was a play in particular that spoke to you. No, not particularly, because his plays, again, for me, are just more fun. His plays don't usually really take me on an emotional journey. Okay. When my sister Chelsea was in high school and I was still in elementary school, I saw her in a production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and I think seeing my sister in plays was one of the first ways I got really into theater. Because um, we went to the same high school and our high school was like a theater magnet school. Um, I didn't know anything about A Midsummer Night's Dream and I ended up really loving it. Um, I don't know if I've ever even like seen Shakespeare or like maybe I knew his name but didn't really know anything about him at that age. But our high school really had good actors and especially her class. Mm -hmm. And I remember it being really funny and I went and saw the show like at least twice if not like three times. Like I just really, really enjoyed it and I felt like even as a young kid that I could... Um, understand what was going on it was also um a 1950s version <laughs> um so like uh 
like the, the, the two couples that fall in love, two are nerds and two are like really cool. <laughs> and like some of the fairies were like in roller skates and I, I loved it. <laughs> this is this is coming together for me as uh, Becky's formative Shakespeare experience. <laughs> a, a Midsummer Night's Xanadu. Uh, yeah, seriously. <laughs> I also remember when I visited England for the first time, when I was 18, I visited Stratford-upon-Avon, which is, wow. um, it's basically Shakespeare land, because it's <laughs> yeah. where he was born. But like every every shop there is like a Shakespeare pun, like the Merchant of Tennis or something. God. I felt like I was in The Simpsons. Did you go funny. to the theme park called Willywood? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> but one of the things that I bought there, they had these like itty bitty books of Shakespeare plays for sale, like a very, and I'm talking about like tiny, like the size of your hand. <laughs> and I got a Midsummer Night's Dream. And I remember being like on the London tube and like reading it. Like I was reading like a little book and it was the first Shakespeare play I've ever read freely, like meaning it wasn't like a school assignment. And I felt like I could read and understand what they were saying. Like I didn't have to be like, huh? Um, like I could, it was still like Shakespearean, you know, it was in that <laughs> style, but you know, I could understand what was happening. And I remember I also bought these little hand puppets of the players, bottom quince flute, you know, like um, their characters in the play within Midsummer Night's Dream, where they're like a lion, the wall, Pyramus, and Thisbe. And now they're my Christmas ornaments on my tree because I kept them all these years. That's so cute. I know. So I really like that play. <laughs> I love that. Um, um, so when I got to high school, um, we did four plays a year and one was always a Shakespeare um, and during my years there, we did Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, The Merchant of Venice, and The Comedy of Errors. And I was never cast in any of the Shakespeare's, <laughs> except I had a few lines um, in The Comedy of Errors as an obese maid. And I hated it because I had to wear a fat suit. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it was uh, It was at the beginning of my Weight Watchers journey in high school oh, <laughs> before God. I had lost any weight. It's a really and I was great timing the- for you there. Oh, yeah. It was... I was... Um, I should have been more grateful because like, even though I'd had only a few lines, they combined it with songs from the boys from Syracuse, which is the musical version of the comedy of errors. Mm. And so I got to sing a song, um, but I hated it the whole time because I was wearing a fat suit and I was had real big, you know, problems with an insecurities. <laughs> so <laughs> I hated it. Yeah. See, I, I wasn't even going to bring it up, but like Midsummer Night's Dream was one of the plays we did in high school. And I guess I lucked out by that point in having known I was insecure enough to remove myself from consideration for acting. And I was just a techie <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so I like painted a set for Midsummer Night's Dream, but that's about all I was out there trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> so like I feel like in theory I enjoy Shakespeare <laughs> mm-hmm. like he reminds me of like how I feel about Kubrick <laughs> where I, fi- I feel like that they're a genius uh, and I recognize that but like mm-hmm. okay I once saw a production of Richard III in the West End and I was so fucking bored <laughs> and confused <laughs> and that's like m- the majority of my experience is watching Shakespeare with with few exceptions where I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and I'm like, it's not enjoyable. Like I under like it's one thing when you're reading it and you're like, oh, it's clever and we're figuring out what they're saying and it, you know, this and that. But like watching it, like most of the time, like I don't like it. <laughs> Becky, I kind of wanted to pick up on what you just said because I feel like I kind of soft pedaled it before, but like I love Shakespeare for his cleverness, but I really don't think he was a very brilliant storyteller. I think a lot of the 
kind of characters he puts together are characters only for the sake of the fact that they're delivering lines of dialogue for him. But I think there's something about a lot of, if not most of his kind of playwriting that feels very samey, especially over time, you know, like once you see oh, for sure. multiple different plays of his. But that's why there's like um, conventions of Shakespeare. Like there's always like, you know, people dressing in as a different gender or there's mistaken identity or there's people that think they're right. dead, but they're not dead. Like it's there's a lot of the same themes. Exactly. And I kind of bring that up only to say that I feel like Shakespeare will be taught forever, but I kind of lament that because I think that so many other writers are so much better at actual story construction and so much better at investing characters with a lot of depth and dimensionality. And I don't think any of that about Shakespeare's work. Well, I want to just um, speak up for the... <laughs> you <to> defend Shakespeare. <laughs> you have to yeah. defend him in iambic pentameter or nothing. <laughs> Um, you know, lest we be the podcast that decided Gremlins was better than Shakespeare. Or something. <laughs> oh, we aren't going to rank those? <laughs> Eventually, you know, I'm sure we will. <laughs> I guess what I want to point out is just like that what he was writing for was the stage and for them to be performed. So he wasn't necessarily writing for people hundreds of years later and studying these things intricately. Like, I mean, they obviously were successful for what he was accomplishing because we're still <laughs> seeing these plays um, hundreds of years later. But yeah, I just want to like, yes, maybe he is overanalyzed a little bit. And I do agree that like sometimes his storytelling is a little broad or kind of obvious. But I think that probably really worked for the audiences that were watching these plays at the time. And some of the fault with, you know, like trying to like revere him so much is more with people after the fact rather than like his own talent. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and I do have to say, like, there's something for, we're still talking about his plays all, you know, so far in the future from when he wrote them, that I think there is something about this, the simplicity of like something like Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth. And like, I can totally see what you mean, Seth, but I think that there's just something there that is so universal that that's why people all around the, the world study him still. Yeah. And I mean, maybe my lament is just more that, you know, like Oscar Wilde specifically <laughs> is not more universally lauded as a literary and theatrical pioneer. He is. He's just not Shakespeare like level, but he's certainly lauded. Well, but I think Oscar Wilde is kind of one of those people who gets like referred to. Uh, like among the canon of quote unquote great authors, but his specific works aren't really, in my experience, like studied to the same degree and specificity that Shakespeare's are. Well, no ones um, are. <laughs> I mean, it's. I totally think level. you're right in that, Becky. That that does make I think, sense. Yeah, I think Seth is right that there's plenty of other things that maybe should be taught in school. Like, is it necessary to teach Shakespeare? And like, literally, like you know, I took at least three classes where we <laughs> studied Shakespeare. It might not be necessary, seriously, um, to do it that much. <laughs> I certainly, you know, got a lot out of it. So I'm not saying it wasn't good, but there was plenty of stuff I didn't study, like Oscar Wilde. I've never personally read. But I did want to make one more note on Shakespeare because something Seth said um, reminded me of it, which is just that, like, I think one of the reasons that he has uh, lasted for so long is that he did so many genres and 
even within you know mm. different plays, there's a lot of genres and there's like supernatural stuff in a lot of the plays. So they they touch on horror. A lot of them are very funny. A lot of them are very tragic and dramatic. So in that way, like it re- does kind of remind me of cinema. Like yeah. there's something kind of cinematic about his plays and the the stories he created that might not be true of a lot of other writers, you know, throughout history. I think there's a lot to that. And I mean, even on the level of like doing plays within a play, like that kind of meta storytelling technique, Mm -hmm. I think you may be right on that, that like, especially among people of his time, that that would be a much rarer thing. And his kind of elasticity with genre is pretty interesting and fun. I would agree with that. So Shakespeare's contemporary genius, Boz Lerman. Let's talk about him next. (laughs) Mark Anthony Lerman was born in a small town. (laughs) I'm sorry. Mark Anthony Lerman was born in a small town 200 miles outside Sydney, Australia in September of 1962. His mother, Barbara, was a ballroom dance teacher and dress shop owner. And his father, Leonard Lerman, ran a petrol station and a movie theater. It all makes sense, doesn't it? It totally checks out all of this. Everything except for the petrol station. Although, (laughs) I guess there's the scene in Romeo and Juliet, so. Yeah. Do you buy your thumb sir? I I do buy my thumb, sir! Do you buy your thumb sir? Sir. Is love our side if I say I? No! No, sir, I do not buy my thumb at you, sir, but I buy my thumb, sir! Do you quarrel, sir? Quarrel, sir? No, sir! But if you do, sir, I'm for you, I serve as good a man as you! No, better? Here comes our kinsman, say better! Yes, sir, but you're alive! Two of you be mine! Poor fools, you know not what you do! Lerman received the nickname Boz from schoolmates who were teasing him about his very curly, wild Afro hairstyle and called him Basil Brush, which is a British puppet of a fox that appeared on children's TV. (laughs) I guess they mean his like, I I looked at this character, he doesn't have like an Afro. Maybe they were making fun of his like a tail or something look like his hair. I don't know. (laughs) Um, The name, which was an insult, stuck. Uh, while still in high school, Lerman changed his name to Basmark, combining his nickname with his birth name. And uh, you might know that Basmark is also the name of his production company. Uh, Baz started his career as an actor, appearing in film and TV. In 1982, he started his own theater company using money he earned from his acting gigs. He would be involved in producing, directing, and conceiving stage productions for the next decade. One of the shows he set up while studying at the National Institute of Dramatic Arts in Sydney was a play called Strictly Ballroom. An expanded version of the play became a success at the Czechoslovakian Youth Drama Festival. (laughs) It was restaged years later at Sydney's Wharf Theatre, where it was seen by Australian music executive and film producer Ted Albert. He wanted to turn the play into a film, and Lerman agreed on the condition that he would direct it. Uh, Strictly Ballroom, which was Boslerman's uh, debut as a film director, uh, barely had a budget of $3 million and had no real stars. It premiered at Cannes Film Festival and was a huge success. And when it opened in Australia, it was a hit. It has since earned $80 million. Um, Boz Lerman, in general, he's the most commercially successful Australian director with four of his, til- uh, four of his films in the top 10 highest worldwide grossing Australian films of all time. So I saw Strictly Ballroom. Um, I watched it years ago and wanted to, I, I didn't really remember much. Um, so I rewatched it for this podcast. Did anybody else watch it ever? I saw it when I was a kid um, only because I know that my mom watched and loved this movie because she is first in line for every dancing movie ever, even Dirty Aww. Dancing <laughs> to Havana Nights. 
<laughs> um, but like you, I remembered nothing of it. And I only watched the trailer this time around, but I saw enough in the trailer to know that I remembered literally nothing of that movie. <laughs> Chris, did you watch it? Yeah, I watched it for the first time a couple months ago because I knew that we were going to be doing... I, I knew that we are friends with Becky and we would be doing an episode about Moulin Rouge. So since I'd never seen it... So you began your buzzploitation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I watched it basically because I knew that we would be talking about it right now. Yeah, and I just want to touch on it briefly. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) It's way, big surprise, it's way over the top. (laughs) I guess the most interesting thing is that it's just so Baz Luhrmann of what you see of him later in his career that it's just like he was just like that from the start. (laughs) I I can't say that I enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> At times it felt like a three camera sitcom, like it was just so yeah. um, style over substance at all that it was just a lot. And I felt like, okay, well, we're not going to talk about it for a long time on the podcast, so I'm not going to finish it. <laughs> so I watched about <laughs> half of it. <laughs> I was surprised even watching the trailer how much it turned me off. I remember loving it as a kid and specifically like all that I remembered from it because I like forgot every character and really almost every image but just the zany over the topness of it stayed with me like even from the time that I was a, a teeny tiny tot watching it but again just like even watching the trailer and like maybe a clip or two it's all performance and it all like everything comes off as a commercial for itself almost i in retrospect should have expected what it is but i think even like back when i first heard of it when it first came out i'm sure it was in you know entertainment weekly as i was was my you know gateway into all things pop culture that I didn't actually watch at the time. But I think I had expected it to be much like glossier and more generic because it was about ballroom dancing and it just sounded, you know, kind of like a rom-com. So that's what I was expecting. Even though having seen all of Baz Luhrmann's movies um, after <laughs> this, you know, I probably should have expected a Baz Luhrmann movie. <laughs> I actually enjoyed this movie more or less. I didn't love it, but I thought it was fun. There was a lot that reminded me of later Boss Larman. Like there's a whipping sound when they're dancing mm-hmm. on the oh dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> it felt very much like certain sound effects uh, from Moulin Rouge. There's like a scene where he's dancing in front of a Coke billboard, <laughs> which felt also mm-hmm. very Moulin Rouge. <laughs> it has, yeah, this very irreverent Aussie humor that is like somewhat present in the later films, but is way more concentrated here. Like it feels like um, kind of the tone of Muriel's wedding a little bit. Um, mm hmm. And, and things like uh, that. The dad from Uriel's wedding is in... The two people from Uriel's wedding are in Strictly Ballroom. I recognize them. Can I, can I make Sorry. a comparison I- here? Because the, the, the humor and zaniness of it, and again, like not having watched the whole movie, I can't say that this is a particularly informed take of mine, but I'll plow forth regardless. I found something very similar in the tone and feeling of this to Terry Gilliam's Brazil. But, like, with no Mm -hmm. irony. Um, And, I mean, it's, like, it was very gritty looking, but it just didn't feel like the movie itself, like, felt nearly as dark. And it kind (laughs) of made me... not. (laughs) Yeah, like, it it made me realize very quickly, like, for me personally in my own movie taste, like, there's a kind of 
leavening that I kind of need in things that are that campy with a little bit of real drama or real darkness or real stakes. Um, and I don't know that I necessarily like understood that as well before watching so much Baz Luhrmann, but here we are. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, I mean, I'm like that too, which is why I would like, li- I lightly enjoyed this movie, but I didn't love it because of that reason is that it felt a little bit kind of fluffy and, you know, low stakes. Um, I did really like Paul Mercur- Mercurio, who is the lead actor, um, who I don't think really had much of a like film career after that, but he's, was cast, I think, because he's like a great dancer, but I found him mm. very like charismatic as the lead of this. So that kind of carried me through. Great. So let's move on to Baz Luhrmann's next movie, his follow-up to Strictly Ballroom, which was William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And I'm going to take it a little bit back to just Shakespeare at the movies in general. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to go back to the 1600s. <laughs> According to the Guinness Book of World Records, there are 410 film and TV adaptations of William Shakespeare's works, making him the most filmed author of all time in any language. Oh boy. Wow. As of June 2020, IMDb lists Shakespeare as having a writing credit on 1,500 films, including <laughs> those not yet in production. Jesus. William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, the movie, uh, was released in 1996. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet was also released in 1996, as was a film adaptation of Twelfth Night with a pre-Fight Club Helena Bonham Carter. Richard III with Ian McKellen was released the year before, and Much Ado About Nothing with Kenneth Branagh and Denzel Washington was released in 1993. So Romeo and Juliet didn't start a trend of Shakespearean adaptations. Um, however, um, this movie is the most successful Shakespearean film adaptation of all time unless you count The Lion King as an adaptation of <laughs> Hamlet or count West Side Story's box office adjusted for inflation. Because huh. that's like billions. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't count those if anyone cares uh, about my... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really... If it's not them actually spinking iambic pentameter, I don't consider it. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's like a different category, I think. So let's move on to Romeo and Juliet. The release date was November 1st, 1996. The budget was $14.5 million. The box office was $151 million. The movie was nominated for just one Oscar, Best Art Direction. Did not win. Hmm. The movie was directed by Baz Luhrmann, written by Baz Luhrmann and his longtime co-writer Craig Pierce. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, Harold Perrineau, John Leguizamo, Pete Postlewaite, Jamie Kennedy, Paul Sorvino, and Brian Dennehy. <laughs> and every song you loved in seventh grade. <laughs> so Leonardo DiCaprio got the role of Romeo, but some actors that auditioned for the movie for the part of Mercutio, Ewan McGregor auditioned, so did Christian Bale and John Leguizamo. Benicio Del Toro was considered for the part of Tybalt. Eventually, John Leguizamo got Tybalt. Some actresses were, that were considered for Juliet are Sarah Michelle Gellar, oh no. Jennifer Love Hewitt, Aaliyah, Kate Winslet, and Christina Ricci. Natalie Portman was also considered and even flew um, to Sydney to film scenes with Leonardo DiCaprio. But Lerman said of Portman, although she's a fantastic young actor, she's a tiny little girl and Leonardo is six feet tall. It just became obscene. She was 14. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. too young. <laughs> Yeah. Even for the person who starred in The Professional, who was too young at the time, (laughs) that's still too young. Yeah, and Leo was 21. I so I happened upon the Sarah Michelle Gellar fact, and then um, <laughs> sure <also> you did <laughs> looked into some um, casting, and yeah, that that just would have been um, gross. Yeah, I'm sure she was a great actress at the time, you know. But yeah, that would have been weird. 
um, on Paul Rudd's last day of the shoot, um, he and Leonardo DiCaprio were on their way to a bar to celebrate when Leo casually mentioned that he'd been considering the lead in a studio film called something like Titanic. And Paul Rudd uh, was an expert on the great ship's history thanks to his dad, and he urged him to take the part. So we have Paul Rudd to thank for that. I love this so much. Thank you, Paul. I We have so much to thank Paul Rudd for just in general, but just add it to the list, honestly. Baz has said on creating the style for the movie, what I wanted to do was to look at the way in which Shakespeare might make a movie of one of his plays if he was a director. How would he make it? We know about the Elizabethan stage and that he was playing for 3,000 drunken punters from the street sweeper to the Queen of England and his competition was bear baiting and prostitution. Mm -hmm. So he was a relentless entertainer and a user of incredible devices and theatrical tricks to ultimately create something of meaning and convey a story. That was what we wanted to do. So reviews on this movie were really, really split. Yeah. (laughs) Jeff Miller of the Houston Chronicle gave it a positive review, saying the film is so over loud and over directed and overproduced and so energetic that finally you can't do anything except smile at it. (laughs) However, Roger Ebert gave it two stars and wrote a pretty scathing review. He said, the desperation with which it tries to update the play and make it relevant is greatly depressing. In one grand but doomed gesture, writer-director Boz Lerman has made a film that will A, dismay any lover of Shakespeare, and B, bore anyone lured into the theater by promise of Gang Wars MTV style. Uh, sorry, Gang Wars and MTV style. This production was a very bad idea. Oof. He also said of Leo and Claire, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes are talented and appealing young actors, but they're in over their heads here. There is a way to speak Shakespeare's language so that it could be heard and understood and they have not mastered it. So he was not a fan. So what is your history with this movie? Did you watch it when you were younger? Um, What did you think at the time? File under Becky made me watch this. (laughs) I made you watch it? Wait, what? I think so. (laughs) Because I had never seen it uh, in high school or anything. I was obviously very aware of it. But this exists in my memory as a trailer, as clips from the MTV (laughs) Movie Awards, Mm. as a soundtrack. Yes. Obviously, I knew it was a soundtrack to a movie, so I knew the movie existed. But that's what I heard about and heard the songs from the soundtrack, you know, constantly for at least a couple years. And it's, you know, it kicked off Leo Mania, which obviously then kicked even into higher gear with Titanic. Paul Rudd's Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Rudd's William Shakespeare's Titanic. (laughs) Um, I will pay to watch that movie when it inevitably comes out. (laughs) So I was, you know, obviously aware of this as a teenager, but I wasn't that interested in teen culture in 1996. I had not really started listening to pop music yet. So even though I was very aware of the soundtrack and heard some of it, I never like bought the soundtrack. I never heard it like all the way through it was just the kind of the singles that i heard like this was 96 so i was into twister and action movies like the rock and ransom that came out that year so like this just wasn't my thing yet like i would have been probably into it like one year later when i was really into like buffy and scream and those kinds of things at this point it just like really didn't interest me which is kind of also strange because i think i was actually reading romeo and juliet like this year in school so i don't think i ever watched it and i'm guessing it was that becky made me watch this because (laughs) i can't think of another like moment I would have like sought it out um but there were things that Becky made me watch like uh train spotting <laughs> when we were friends in college so you, I didn't make you watch it for the podcast I made it, you watch it some sometime in our friendship both because <laughs> oh, okay you made me re-watch it for the podcast but yeah <laughs> okay. like way back in like um college 
Also, we've admitted at this point that your friendship with us was just a long con for this podcast, right? Uh Uh-huh. Playing a long game. No, it's a longer con for something else that you don't know about yet. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. How the tables will have turned. (laughs) I did not watch this movie until like, it had to be like 97 or 98 or 99, like closer to around the time of Titanic. And I feel like I watched this in one of those like sleepovers with friends situations you know where you're like eating all the candy in the universe and watching a whole bunch of movies and everyone's trying to stay up all night that may have been one of my birthdays like i had some sleepover birthdays i just literally like i'm fuzzy on the details when i first watched this movie because the movie itself didn't stick with me very well at all i know i saw it like roughly right after it came out but for me the two abiding things Things about this whole project were one inescapable horniness for Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> and two that soundtrack on the first issue Chris called it Leomania and like I what I wrote down was like horniness for Leo DiCaprio was the closest thing my generation had to Beatlemania mm. so like Leomania apps that totally fits as a term like for good reason that is the only phenomenon of pheromones that I think even remotely measures up to how popular Leo DiCaprio was. He was in every magazine. He was on every channel. He was in every movie. He was even in everybody's CD players because of this soundtrack. That man was like so inescapable and his face was so inescapable. And for me, at least, hearing about my female friend's love and adoration and obsession with Leo DiCaprio was the reason I heard about this movie. And Chris, like you, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, inevitably also exists in the context of like MTV Movie Awards. I feel like they still give it an MTV Movie Award like every year. (laughs) <laughs> like for most most Baz movie this year or something. Baziest. Yeah, so like the first big thing was just the horniness for Leo. And then the second thing was just the the soundtrack itself. Like I've said on this podcast before, one of the biggest ways I would hear new music that I'd never heard before was listening to friends, Sony Walkmans, and like putting on their headphones and they'd be like, hey, Seth, have you heard this song yet? I feel like you'd really like this. We'll talk a lot about the soundtrack to this because it's such an elemental part of it. But for me, that was absolutely and vividly the first way that I heard about this movie ever and and multiple times over for years before I ever saw the movie was in terms of this soundtrack specifically. Um, And like, I even know for a fact that there were like two different CD soundtracks or it was like a two CD soundtrack because I remember like my friends, I, I can't remember which friends of mine it was specifically, but like, I remember friends of mine playing some specific songs from the soundtrack and being like, look, like this is a band called garbage. Uh, or like, this is a band called Radiohead, and I don't know if you've ever heard them before, but Seth, I really feel like you'd like this song. Um, and so funny enough, like this movie didn't stick with me very much, but uh, the absolute insane desperate love for Leo DiCaprio certainly did. Um, and the soundtrack and a lot of the groups that were very strangely on the soundtrack of this movie um, really did become kind of fixtures in my life. 
Like the butthole surfers. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The butthole surfers. This is going to be a mostly BHS centered podcast. <laughs> uh, butthole is one word, so it would be the BS podcast. It already is, guys. <laughs> uh, the real BHS heads will know what I'm talking about, baby. How do I follow butthole surfers? Um, <laughs> funny enough, I don't remember seeing this movie in the theater, although I did. It was that I remember loving it and everyone else loving it in seventh grade. Like this was <laughs> yeah. when I think of junior high and I, if I had to pick a movie that represented like junior high, it was, it would be this movie. Yeah. I remember everyone loved it. And it was like funny because it was like Shakespeare, you know, but it was just like the biggest thing. Everyone had the soundtrack. I had both soundtracks because there's two. Mm-hmm. I had the movie, <laughs> you know, on VHS. You know, I just loved it. I was definitely, I felt cool liking it because everyone liked it. It was a, a very popular movie. And I, and it was definitely, I think I was like 12 or 13. And it was, you know, when you're getting into music and I loved this soundtrack and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later when we talk about the movie, but just revisiting the soundtrack, I always listen to it like it was one, one long track. So like as soon as one track ends, I'm like, my head already knows like what's next. <laughs> like I can just immediately, it's like it's one long song and it's still like with me. Like I still feel that way, but I, I loved this movie growing up and yeah, I think everyone else did too. <laughs> If you saw it at the time, which clearly Chris didn't. And that surprised me very much. Hmm. Didn't, d- doesn't surprise me about you, Seth, <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> Someday I'll shock you, Becky. Someday I will. Yeah, one day. So let's just get into uh, our thoughts now. What did you think of this movie, watching it as an adult and not a seventh grader? Well, I think uh, Shakespeare said it best. <laughs> oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps all are punished. <laughs> no, that's a little bit more negative than I feel about the movie. But I mean, it does kind of sum it up. I think this movie is okay. Um, and I like some of the ideas, but it's very stylish. It has a very particular style, which is fun for a while. But I don't think it has enough to sustain like two hours. So I got really kind of over it about halfway through and was just kind of like, you know, like felt like I was just, you know, kind of stuck in a bad theater production of Shakespeare. <laughs> And I didn't remember the movie at all. Like, I know I saw it one time, but I, like, I remembered, like, the images that, you know, would have been in the trailer or played on the MTV Movie Awards. But, like, as a movie, I had no frame of reference and didn't really remember any of the parts that aren't just iconic from, like, pop culture in general. Seth? I have to agree with Chris entirely here. Um, and with William, <laughs> I always think that these Shakespeare adaptation films are interesting and valuable basically only as cinematic experiments for their creators. I don't ever find that Shakespearean movies like this succeed in pairing the very outdated and very strictly structured language of Shakespeare's prose with storytelling or characters that's strong enough to make these stories really hit deeply. And Becky, hearing that quote from Baz Luhrmann that you gave, it really does help me understand his approach more to where Baz Luhrmann was framing it more as attempting to recreate or reproduce the experience of going to the Globe Theater where there was literally like bear baiting and, you know, Mm -hmm. meaning like there were wrestling bears in the same theater (laughs) that you were there watching a play and you had to 
to compete with that as a performer. And I find that utterly charming as an explanation, but I don't feel that that's a valid artistic approach to making a feature film in the 20th century or 21st century. Like I said earlier, I think the innovation of Shakespeare and the genius of Shakespeare is nearly entirely based in dialogue. And in those, you know, particular lines that the characters speak that have become, you know, immortalized. But I need to be very clear that, like, even the very best dialogue by itself is not storytelling. You know, so, like, I'm sorry for my very hot shakes takes, (laughs) but I don't think that this is good storytelling. And even with all the pretty images and all of the endless MTV editing tricks that Baz Luhrmann uses, I also don't think Baz Luhrmann is a good enough filmmaker or storyteller to create the kind of moments that would really elevate all the theatricality of this play into something that really feels cinematic. So the movie, to me, again, just ends up feeling like a commercial for itself. It feels like a music video for itself or something. There are absolutely some exceptions. I think there are several high points in this. As far as some of the casting choices, to name one, I think that they did a really interesting twist or job setting the character of Friar Lawrence, that's uh, Pete Postlewaite, um, and the setting of the church that he's in. And I really felt like that was one of few exceptions where it felt like they created a different context and a whole different visual atmosphere that really drew me into it. But overall, I think like half of this movie took place in Juliet's backyard. And even if that is close to the spirit of the play, you know, that's bad filmmaking. It's boring storytelling. And to me, Chris, exactly like it did for you, this movie ragged ass just because it's an exceedingly simple-minded story about like fairy tale perfect love and romance and nothing that this movie has and nothing that the filmmakers of this movie offer is really able to make it transcend that and really make it become something better now like even as much as i like the soundtrack of it and again we'll like talk about our high points of the soundtrack or whatever but i think this is one of the few movies where try as it might the soundtrack does kind of make it a more coherent more cohesive experience becky like you were talking about i can totally understand how like if you've heard the soundtrack enough times you know that like oh this transition from this song into that song matches with that story moment I didn't have any of that, and I didn't remember any of those story points or anything like that. But I did find myself enjoying the experience of watching the songs that are in this movie, the way that they're chosen, the way that it's mixed, and all of that. And I did feel like it tried its best to elevate this into something that felt like more. But ultimately, for me, it couldn't distinguish itself from like a trailer, and it really just felt kind of like a perfume commercial or like a trailer for another movie or a music video or something you know that's kind of equally reliant on the most surface level aspects with no real ability to go deeper well i loved this movie in seventh grade and (laughs) i love this movie now (laughs) our streak is over (laughs) the streak has ended for everyone keeping score at home i love i love this movie i love it wow (laughs) i love it I love it. Wow. (laughs) You love all of it? Yes. Okay. I love the colors. I love the (laughs) costumes. This would make a great group Halloween costume. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. So many good costumes. I love the acting. I love the the (laughs) cast. What? 
Yes. I love I love the soundtrack. Oh boy do I. That's a whole that's a whole topic. I love the random Shakespeare lines like the guy saying bubble bubble toil and trouble to like a bunch of like passing people and like different Shakespeareisms like on signs and stuff. I love it. I'm wincing. <laughs> I honestly I'm covering my face and wincing. <laughs> Well, we're going to have to cut into more of the soundtrack here because I feel like I'm just going to start crying. Like I I love it. Um I I just I the the one of my notes was is this movie 3 minutes long or 3 hours? I don't know because kidding? it it felt so quick to me because <gasps> it was never boring and never stops for a moment. What? It's just so compelling oh, to Becky, me. Becky, this movie felt like it was 4 hours long to me. No, it felt it felt so dense with entertainment that <laughs> I agree that it felt dense. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're with you halfway. Becky. It was dense. Look, this is true in many circumstances, Becky, but we're truly with you halfway. <laughs> no, like I love even just like, I love that hole blasted in a giant theater on the beach. Cause he's like literally blasting a hole through theater. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this Jesus. Movie. I love it. I- <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Let me... <laughs> We got to regroup here. We got to recover from this somehow. Okay. Yes. Uh, one of one of our podcast hosts is over to the left. <laughs> Two of us are way over to the right, and I'm going to try and bring us all to the middle for a little bit, so that we can then go to our separate corners again by the end of this episode. So what I'm going to say is that um, I think there are a lot of really strong ideas, and this movie starts out pretty well. I feel like I can kind of see the movie that people love in the beginning of this movie. It opens like really vividly. With the TV even. I love that. Black Void. I mean, that's literally the highlight of the movie for me is that (laughs) opening. I love the TV. It's a newscaster. Actually, same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. And it's a news. I love the way it opens. A newscaster like um, delivering the opening lines of the play. Two households. Both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end not could remove is now the two hours traffic of our stage. It's like ominous in a way. Like I, re- I do remember seeing that in the theater and being like, oh, it's a black void and the TV's coming toward me. Like it was just such like it's visceral. I don't know. I loved it. And, and now for me, that moment in particular hit in a way because I don't know about you, but for me, it, it reminded me in a way of the LA riots. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It gave me for the really, truly the only time rewatching this movie, an actual like pang of emotional connection to what was happening on screen because it genuinely for literally the only time in this entire story felt like the love story at the heart of the movie and like the rivalry at the heart of the movie had actual stakes in the broader world and that it could actually cause that level of like social unrest and nothing else in the movie even like attempts to try to come close to that but that that intro i think was good chris yeah it just it's the only thing that actually makes it feel 
like it really happened um, or like that puts mm-hmm. it some, con- some connection to the real world. I think um, it's very nineties. And we've talked in previous episodes about how ubiquitous the news was with like OJ chase mm. Lewinsky, just like these news <laughs> things exactly. that seem, seem to go on and on and on. And so framing it in that way really does set it in the nineties, which is obviously what, Boslerman's going for here is setting it mm-hmm. in not, you know, necessarily like the literal 90s, but kind of a very stylized, heightened, like fantasy version. And so I think that's brilliant. And I just wish that he didn't only do it in the first five seconds of the movie and then <laughs> uh, at the very last five seconds of the movie. But there are some touches um, in the early scenes that I like. I mean, I really hate like the flashing on screen of the names and stuff. It's just much too dumbing it down, you know, and like just unnecessary, I think. Yes, that, that Tarantino-esque kind of style um, that was especially like adopted by a lot of bad Tarantino um, emulators. Um, it reminded me of Train Spotting a lot. The energy of it in those early scenes, especially, and just mm-hmm. like the chaos. Um, and in that way, I mean, I, I think Train Spotting uh, obviously is a, is a better film. But there, it, and that was the same year, right? Was that ninety six too? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it seems like it's very in that moment. Um, and so I, you know, kind of appreciated um, it as that kind of, you know, capitalizing on something that was happening in film in general. That's a really great point, Chris. And I hadn't thought of train spotting because, you know, like I, I wrote my Brazil Terry Gilliam note also about rewatching Romeo and Juliet as well, because in a lot of ways, this movie reminded me of Brazil, especially in the first like 20 or 30 minutes. Primarily, like Juliet's mother is just fucking insane. Oh <laughs> this night we shall behold him at our feast. Read all the volume of young Paris face and find delight with there, with beauty's pen. This precious book of love, this unbound lover, to beautify him only lacks a cover. So shall you share all that he doth possess by having him making yourself no less. They bigger. Women grow by men. <gasps> Speak briefly. Can you like of Paris's love? I look to like, if looking liking move. But no more deep will I endart mine eye than your consent to give strength to make it fly. Madame, the guests are come. Go! We follow thee. Juliet! She's like a live-action Looney Tune, and like I hate those scenes so too. much that like introduce her, and it takes me out like basically near the very start of this movie and doesn't really get me back. But yeah, Train Spotting I I think is another great touchstone because that's another movie that, as zany and intentionally visually manic as it is, Danny Boyle did a much better job at grounding his characters and again just making them feel believable. Where we all know that this is not the world that we all inhabit, but it feels like a world that these people do inhabit. As much as there are a couple moments where it feels like there is a world that these characters are living in or some of these characters like Mercutio I would say feel like they live in a world there's rarely a point where the two meet and there's rarely a point where I ever feel like there are people inhabiting this actual world and there's rarely a moment where I feel like the world of this movie extends beyond the exact literal running time of this and nothing more yeah it's weird because like you just don't get a sense of like what else 
might be happening somewhere. Like, there's no scenes that feel like yeah. there's another world outside <laughs> the immediate vicinity. Yes. Like, especially like you see early on, like the Capulet and the Montague like buildings. Like they ha- each have like little skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just like what like the, one of my big problems with this movie is just like what do they do like what is this I don't think it matters I do think it matters I think it matters a lot but it does though because the the whole emotional stakes of this movie rely on us believing that it's this important and earth shattering that these two people encounter each other and that they have this intense and deep a connection I don't, it doesn't m- matter to me it just matters that they're rivals but I think there's just, just so much more like world building that could have been done because ultimately to me, like the important part of this is that, it, you know, it's like this teen romance, but it ends tragically. And what we're left with is the parents um, being confronted with the fact that their rivalry mm-hmm. has basically killed their kids. And I might go into like a little bit more about what I thought that about that when we, you know, talk more about the end of the movie, Um, but in general, like, I just think there's so much opportunity to build out a specific, like, what kind of people are these people? Like, they don't feel like people who would inhabit, like, not, like, any world, really. Like, especially that Mrs. Capulet character is just, like, bonkers and kind of feels like, um, someone who wandered from Strictly Ballroom, basically. And, uh, just, like, it doesn't, like, I'm not connected to it at all, and it doesn't feel... Like, obviously, it doesn't have to feel real. Like, this movie doesn't feel real. But it needs to have some kind of... I need some kind of context for, like, who is this guy? Like, they're, they obviously have some kind of power and influence it, but we never see it. And it's it's not really clear why they have gangs. And just, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very literal translation of things, you know, that just made more sense um, in the late 1500s or early 1600s. Like, not sure exactly which... Um, this play was written in, but, um, you know, that era, um, like the, these kinds of duels and stuff would have made sense. And yeah, there's some kind of allegory, like to gang warfare that would be in the nineties, but this doesn't feel like that. So it's just like, it just feels really like randomly transposed and it doesn't, yeah, there, I just don't have any sort of context or information about like why I should care about this. I just, I. And ultimately, you know, go ahead, Becky. I'm I, sorry. I just watched this movie. I know what Romeo and Juliet is. I know who's going to die. I know the beats of the story. I'm watching it, I guess, in a style over substance way. Like, I want to be yeah. entertained. And I, and I am by this. I want to be drawn in. I want to understand what they're saying. And I feel like the <laughs> actors and the adaptation for the majority of the acting, like I feel like I understand what they're saying. I understand what's going on because of their acting. Maybe not everybody feels that way, um, but... Oh, see, yeah. For, there were a lot of moments where the language and the poetic devices, I just did not think that the actors measured up to that prose. I do think there were a lot of moments where it really sang and where it did work well, like you're saying, Becky. But for me, that was so inconsistent and unpredictable, whether they would do that effectively or not, that it that in particular made it a very rocky rewatch. Because again, like Chris is saying, it doesn't build out um, a broader world that dramatically, you know, like grounds these characters and makes us actually grounded in what's happening on screen. 
in comparison, Becky, it sounds like, again, like I'm not putting down the fact that you're like watching it from a style over substance position. But to me, what it reminds me of is like going to a concert of a band that you know all of their greatest hits, you know their songs, you know that they're going to play the greatest hits of their songs. And this time around at this concert, they play that same hit song that you love forever in a different key. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like if you derive enough value from that original song, then it's great for you. And that's a great, like, elevated experience. Um, but if someone's going to that concert and doesn't already love the back catalog so much, that doesn't matter as much. Um, yeah. And I think it depends on what kind of person you are. You, Boz Lerman's not for everybody. <laughs> like, he, he really isn't. <laughs> and I understand that as a person who. Would- and has, I understand that. <laughs> I would hope that, like, as I, like a David Lynch fan, Seth, like, I don't like David Lynch at all. But I understand that some people do because it's just like it's different strokes, I guess. <laughs> I think that's an interesting point of comparison for this because, to to me, what I knock about Baz Luhrmann, one of the biggest reasons Baz Luhrmann's movies don't hit for me is that for me, that man is always playing for the cheapest seats. He is absolutely trying deliberately in every way and level of filmmaking to go for the broadest like lowest common denominator most crowd pleasing type of zaniness and wackiness like that's that's a reason that's a reason that Baz Luhrmann doesn't hit for me whereas like David Lynch totally understandably I think doesn't hit for a lot of people because he's going for such a narrow specific kind of vision but for me one reason why David Lynch is so successful and why so many of his projects hit hard emotionally for me is that he grounds, if not grounding the actual world and in, in elusive mysterious atmospheres or whatever, he gives us a character or two in each of those prod projects that match enough of their experience. We get pulled into their experience of these moments that it makes us go along with the craziness that we see. It makes us, you know, feel emotionally for the characters, even when what's going wrong is like just the sound of like whooshing air or something weird on the soundtrack or something. Um, the, the, it's the things about Baz Luhrmann's approach that turn me off um, because they're not specific because they don't make the characters feel organic or lived in or make the world of this movie feel like it's something that, you know, came before this particular story and will continue after this particular story. Yeah, I'm not like a huge David Lynch person either. I need to like watch some of his movies like again and, you know, but for me, like the difference is that I could spend a lot of time like reading like what the meaning of David Lynch's, you know, films are or like analysis of them or Mm -hmm. that they're very rich with some kind of thought. And so even if it's not for me, I I see that there's so much to them. And yeah, like Seth is saying, there's not anything worth like looking into here. It's all on the surface. It's all like 
if you see it, like, I guess you, Becky, obviously like what you see, but like, it's just, there's nothing else, like no like layers to like scrape into. It just is what it is. And that's fine. I don't think every movie needs that. And for me, this movie in particular, like, I just like watching it. I don't have to like think about it after. I just really like what I'm seeing. (laughs) Because I, what am I going to think about with Romeo and Juliet? You know, I just, I feel like that's not what I'm coming for. Like when I watch this movie, it's not, oh, I feel like a Shakespeare. (laughs) Like I... (laughs) I, I like the actors. I think I think they're attractive or I think that they do a good job or I, I like the music. I like the direction. I like I do like it like on a surface level. And it just is very entertaining to me from start to finish. Like one thing that I do want to point out is that he when people think of Boslerm and they think like frenetic, you know, pacing and you know, like lots of editing. And that's definitely true. But like one of my favorite moments in this movie is when they meet in the bathroom when Romeo and Juliet meet for the first time and there's this fish tank between them that separates the the bathrooms and they're they just see each other through the glass and it's just so beautiful and it's very slow and there's like a love song playing in the background desiree is singing in the nightclub desiree's in the movie singing and it's just a very beautifully shot moment where i like feel the flirtation and i feel the goosebumps and red cheeks and that feeling of seeing somebody for the first time, you know, like love at first sight. And I just think that is such a beautiful moment. Pride can stand a thousand trials The storm will never fall But watching stars without you That always stood out as like one of the images from the movie that stayed with me, especially now rewatching it. Like, I would agree with you that that's one of the few moments in this whole movie where Boslerman stops cutting every millisecond to another angle. And I'm sure the camera's moving a little bit in those shots near the fish tank, but it's mm-hmm. very little. And it's not calling to attention, uh, calling attention to itself like it does in literally every other frame of the movie. But again, that moment is basically over almost as soon as it starts. I agree. I think that's maybe the only scene that really works in this movie. Yes, for their chemistry in particular. Yeah, it does. And I I noted too, I was like, this scene slows down when it counts. Like Mm -hmm. it knows what that moment needs, which is for you to actually be able to register and see Mm -hmm. a connection between these people. It's beautifully staged because of the fish tank, you know, that's obviously not in the play. It's something that he added to this that enhances it and really kind of is an interesting way to do a scene that is obviously like very cliche because we've all seen mm-hmm. versions of Romeo and Juliet and they always meet and there's not a fish tank there. So <laughs> I thought that worked really well, but it also kind of exists as a music video. Literally it's like yes. about like it pretty much lasts <laughs> the length of that song. And I mean, even after that, I think that 
that scene still kind of works as you see them constantly like trying to look at each other more. I love that idea. And I think it really sells what this part of the story is about, which is that young love, like the excitement, being overly excited for someone that you Mm -hmm. don't know at all. You don't know their name. You don't know who they are. But yet you're willing to throw your whole life away for them. Both of the actors in this moment really sell that and just like the excitement of and just like trying to like get different angles to look at each other. And I think pretty much that whole sequence is really well directed and really is the only part of the movie that like invests me in the emotion of their feelings, which I don't actually feel later in the many other scenes that we see them together. Like none of those did that in the same way. And there's many more scenes, you know, where they're professing their love and, you know, swimming in a pool and and things like that, or making love. Um, And a a term I hate, but I feel like it is probably what was in the script here. Um, Because you can't say fucking in in Shakespearean uh, language. Um, No, he never said fuck? uh, Probably not. I don't think so. He said puck. Close. (laughs) But Chris, I, I think this is a particularly good time to really like talk about the soundtrack to this movie for exactly the reason that you laid out here. Like, I, I do think this is unique among all the parts of this movie because it's the one moment where, even though it is in every way staged and cut and edited like a music video, there is the literal, like, physically shown performance of that singer singing the song, and the movie is doing the actual work of showing these characters encountering each other like that and playing out the actual connection that they're supposed to have. But I think a lot of the rest of this movie, even though so many of the songs on the soundtrack hit at that theme that you're talking about, and and obviously the theme that this movie is trying to put across, that theme of first love, desperate love, self-effacingly, self-destructively powerful, all-consuming love that basically all the rest of this movie tries to do the Cameron Crowe thing where instead of grounding it in the characters, instead of grounding it in the characters' actions and what they want and what they're going after, it pulls out the soundtrack. I will pray for you I will pray for you I will sell my soul for something pure and true It pulls out the music cue, singing about how I would die for you. I would do everything to have your love. There's a way in which that can work. Becky, like, I get why you still love the movie, because it plays those hits, you know? It hits those markers along the way, laying out a quote-unquote grand love story, but ultimately, in the end, everything about it is so performative and so superficially performative that, for me, it just doesn't feel real, and it doesn't feel. Like, I, I come away from it 
basically feeling nothing about these characters, even though they're two of very few people who are presented on screen and they're the title characters of the story and we're supposed to be absolutely caught on the edge of our seats for this. I mean, I love that a lot of the music is in the movie, like Desiree is singing at the party, that some of the characters are singing the songs, you know, within the movie. It feels more like it's not just like laid on top later, like, you know, we need like an upbeat song here and it's just like slapped on. I believe all of the songs were written for this movie. And so a lot of them do reference like Romeo or Juliet or like Shakespearean things or some lines from the from the movie. I just love all these songs (laughs) and I like how they're laid in the movie I can think of a song and and be immediately brought to like what scene that is and I guess because the movie just works for me <laughs> maybe it matters if you like the movie or not that part for me is specifically interesting Becky I mean obviously like I'm not inside your head so I can't know if it's really a chicken or an egg situation but for me my kind of first inclination was it would seem to me like you would enjoy the movie more and enjoy rewatching it more now because the songs work so well for you I think it's both I still like the movie I mean the movie okay. the okay. movie is the songs the songs as the movie like it's just so like <laughs> (laughs) in a little package for me that I enjoy watching the movie and hearing these songs. I I, I listened to the soundtrack just like on Spotify and I was having a great time, (laughs) you know, just listening to them because some of them are just like kind of like dipped into the movie. Like the garbage song is just like barely there. It's barely there. Well, yeah, as someone who has never heard the soundtrack before beyond like the bigger radio hits, I was surprised that this movie wasn't more musical. And the songs that I did know, mainly Mm. Number One Crush and Love Fool. Love Fool is put in very awkwardly. Right? Yeah. It feels like you accidentally pushed play on Spotify like while you were watching the movie. And you're like, oops, I got to turn that off. Like it just, it doesn't even feel like the right moment for it. that drop was especially weird because that song was so inescapable and such a gigantic enormous hit in and of itself yeah that like coming back to this movie i expected it to be like featured in a very prominent no it's not (laughs) you know like especially consequential way and it's just like plopped in there (laughs) that's it like yeah so like for me that was a huge disappointment because the two songs that i like and knew from this were not in the movie really in in a significant way same i know there are a couple like the desiree moments obviously like very prominently featured there's a couple more, but if you're going to do that, I feel like there are so many like more opportunities where this could have been like not exactly a musical, but you know, a movie that really centered around music. But like closer to a jukebox musical. Mm-hmm. No, that's the thing. It's like Becky, like what you're talking about, I I feel like I wanted the experience of rewatching this movie that you had. Mm-hmm. This movie very much didn't have me at the start, like with Juliet's mom and all of that. It slowly got me somewhat more as it went along, just because of the kind of jukebox musical feeling of it all. 
But again, I feel like for something like that to have any weight and for it to really hit, it's got to be led by someone who's got enough of a storytelling voice and a real sensibility for storytelling, especially like in terms of a feature film, to be able to like pace that stuff out and to know, you know, like where you need a song, where you really need to slow things down and spend time with the characters. And I just feel like Baz Luhrmann does not have that sensibility. There's definitely something about Baz Luhrmann's work, generally speaking, that just does not fully connect. I felt like there was more that could have been done with these songs. Again, like, especially given the fact that they were all, like, specifically written for this movie, there were ways that they could have been used that would have revealed more about character rather than kind of substituting for character. What did you guys think of Leo and Claire? Okay, so first of all, Leo, there is no better casting in any movie (laughs) than Leonardo DiCaprio as Romeo. Like, just as a pure, like, (laughs) on a poster, you know, like... (laughs) What was he coming off of? Gilbert Grape, he had been nominated for an Oscar a few years but before is that this. It? Okay. So this is basically his teen heartthrob like introduction? Yeah, he did a couple indie movies. I feel like, like the basketball diaries. Mm-hmm. That was yeah, ninety-five or ninety-six. So it was yeah, right around the same time. So it was basically this. This was his like, hello world, I'm I'm a heartthrob. Well, he was trying really hard not to do movies like this, ironically enough. Like, you know, because he always really wanted to take himself seriously. So maybe there's something about the Shakespeare of this mm-hmm. that mm-hmm attracted him to it because it's you know a challenge but like other like he he was really conscious of not being in like teeny bopper things and you know a lot of actors at this time obviously went into doing like you know 10 things i hate about you and um all those teen (laughs) movies um and he you know specifically avoided that kind of stuff and even avoided like anything that was like titanic-esque after this and, you know, started working with Scorsese and stuff to, you know, be a real mm-hmm. actor. So as a casting choice, I really like it. I think he does okay um, with most of the dialogue. <laughs> like there are moments when I buy it and moments when I don't kind of. I, in general, feel like almost every actor in here is tripping on the dialogue a lot. I don't think Baz Luhrmann knows Shakespeare or knows how to direct Shakespeare. Like, I just don't think that's his sensibility. I don't feel like he actually directed the actors or, you know, corrected them when they needed another take because they weren't delivering the lines quite right. Like, I just, I feel like the actors don't always know what they're saying. They're just saying the words. I completely agree with this, Chris. And another little aspect of this and that I wanted to ask both of you about was like, for me, it felt like every line of this movie was dubbed over. Like it felt like literally none of the audio in this entire movie was recorded oh, live I on set. About it. And I, I couldn't tell if the line readings were throwing me off because of the ADR or because of their performances. Cause Chris, like you're talking about, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is a great actor, but in this, it's like half the time it would totally pull me out of the movie and half the time it would really work for me. And I couldn't tell if it was like, you know, like watching a spaghetti Western or something where like their lips don't quite (laughs) ever match up with the dialogue that they're saying. (laughs) And I I couldn't tell if like part of that was, you know, like a, a, audio editing, dialogue editing kind of thing, or their performances. Maybe, yeah. I, I didn't notice that specifically. I would have to watch it again to see. But I think for me, yeah, it's just that like there's a way, like when high school students are reading Shakespeare in class, like it feels <laughs> like they're reading it for the first time. Yeah. And they haven't actually like sat and thought about what these words mean. There's a couple scenes where I actually feel like they know what the words they're saying mean, but mostly it feels like they're just reciting 
poetry that they haven't actually like considered very deeply. Like I feel like they needed my seventh grade teacher or <laughs> any of our teachers they needed that we Miss talked about. <laughs> yes. To come in and be like, here's what you're saying. Like these, this is what this means. Like this word, you know, doubles as this. And I don't think Boz Lerman served that purpose here and probably should have since he wrote and directed it. I'm watching a different movie than you guys. <laughs> 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 I like Leo. I like Claire. I think Claire is amazing in this. Oh, I think she's bad. Really? I think she's much worse than Leo. I think she's so good. Yeah. And also, I forget that I liked Claire Danes a lot when we were talking about actresses we liked growing up. I liked Claire Danes a lot. Hi, me. Romeo. Oh, Romeo. Where for out thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more? Or shall I speak at this? Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is not hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called retained that dear perfection which he owes without that title. See, I love Claire Danes. I have always loved her. I think she's really bad in this wow. movie. I'm watching a totally different movie than you. I think she's really bad. Yeah, and she was like, I think 16 she was 17. or something when they made this. And I, and I thought mm, she was okay, so good. Yeah. Man, wow. So I feel like it's like not even the actors. Really. I just feel like, I think she could have been good if she had been directed better. Like, I don't think I she's... I would agree with that. She's not a bad actress in terms of like what she's projecting is not correct, but it's like, it's the dialogue. Like, she doesn't... I don't think she knows what she's saying. She's not speaking it in a way that feels natural. It feels like she's, you know, doing a high school production. And, and she doesn't and she doesn't have a director who is at every turn pointing to the emotional polarity or direction where everything has to be heading for it to work. Like it's it's to me, it, it was I, I'm actually really glad I rewatched it, like to understand what I don't like about Baz Lerman. And it's just like I don't think he can direct very well. Boy. <laughs> I, I feel like he's like a Busby Berkeley. Basby Berkeley. Who can like pull off some amazing, incredible, perfect images and can fill a frame with a hundred synchronized dancers in a way that's dazzling, but that ultimately doesn't have a single drop of meaning in it anywhere but uh, going back to like the casting of it chris i totally agree with you like i think there's no one else on earth that they could have cast for romeo who would be better than leonardo dicaprio <laughs> like he embodies that so perfectly in a way that did kind of make me a bit disappointed that i didn't think he was directed by someone who could actually take full advantage of that I made specific note of kind of our experience of Leo being in this movie at the time and just how inescapable he was as a celebrity figure. In retrospect, it's pretty rare and amazing that his 
career continued to have such a long successful track record and that like he clearly intended to do he absolutely is a very serious actor now and that's crazy to me like given the fact that he was such a gigantic inescapable celebrity he consciously avoided doing more teeny bopper roles but he did this which is one of the boppiest <laughs> of teenage roles ever devised. but still very serious because it's shakespeare Sure, but but still, it, it's just I would have expected him to either have gently faded away at some point or to have made a string of awful career choices that would have like sullied all the good work he did before. He's got good management. I guess, or or again, just like very cautious about what roles he does. But it was interesting to me that, that he's had that much longevity when it absolutely could have been the case that like this was his most iconic role, you know, and then dot, dot, dot. <laughs> like all the teen heartthrobs we talked about in the teen heartthrobs episode. <laughs> Truly, exactly. Like Jesse Bradford, who's also in this movie. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason we didn't um, t- really talk about Leo that much in that episode is because there's so much more to talk about with Leo than these teen years. He's his own topic, but the rest of those young men were not. Sorry, JTT. (laughs) Weirdly, you know who I think did the best job in this movie? I don't think you will ever in a million years guess who I'm going to say. Can I guess? John John Leguizamo? Leguizamo? Yes. Oh. No. Oh. Well, I liked him too. (laughs) I thought he did pretty good. Is it Mercutio? No. Is it the nurse? (laughs) Okay, just I don't know then. Just tell us. Benvolio, Dash Mihawk as Benvolio. What? He's the kind of surfery dude. <laughs> yeah, one. I know he, him. Oh yeah. my god, I, I liked him fine. I mean, he was, I think, was not in it a lot, but no, he wasn't. But he seems cognitively incapacitated, Chris. <laughs> but that I think that's what worked is that it was like this reinterpretation of the character. That, but to me, like I actually believed him when he was speaking the dialogue. Like that was his character as that he was a dumb guy. And so there was something funny about seeing a dumb guy, like saying these like Shakespearean words and that worked for me. And I wish that there was more, I can see what you more mean. kind of interesting characterizations and juxtapositions between like who these people are and the language that they're saying. Tell me in sadness, who is it that you love? In sadness, cousin, I do love a woman. I aim so near when I supposed you love. A right good marksman, and she's fair, I love. A right fair mark, fair cuz, as soon as hit. Well, not hit, you miss. She'll not be hit with Cupid's arrow, nor by the encounter of assailing eyes, nor ope her lap to saint seducing gold. Then she hath sworn that she will still live chaste? She hath, and in that sparing makes huge waste. Be ruled by me. Forget to think of her. Teach me how I should forget to think. By giving liberty under thine eyes to examine other beauties. Why, Romeo, art thou mad? Not mad, but bound more than a madman is. Shut up in prison, kept without my food, whipped and tormented. Good day, good fellow. Now, I'll tell you without asking. The closest for me that anyone hit in this movie was Mercutio, um, and that was the character that Harold Perrineau played. But I thought, both casting-wise and in terms of just the acting job he did in the characterization, Mercutio, who's like Romeo's best, closest friend and confidant, seemed to me like the casting choice and also just the performance he did was the one that diverged the most from what was on paper in a way that 
made it felt kind of specific and grounded and like his performance of Mercutio is very like gender bending and a bit homoerotic perhaps and that's also like a thing that that John Leguizamo's character like refers to in a kind of you know homophobic way or calls out or whatever but like as, as far as the characters in this movie I found that Mercutio kind of stood out the most and of course he dies very early on yeah I liked him pretty well like it was an interesting choice because he's dressed in drag for the party scene and that but he's also like has mm-hmm. guns and so yeah like you said there's a lot of mixes of masculinity and femininity i think there's like ways it could have been made more interesting or you know but whatever like he he did well especially like with the queen mab um scene where he's giving leo um acid or something like that yes I dreamt a dream tonight. And so did I. And what was yours? That dreamers often lie. In bed asleep while they do dream things true. Oh, then I see Queen Mab has been with you. She is the fairy's midwife. And she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone. On the forefinger of an alderman. Drawn with a team of little atomies. Over men's noses as they lie asleep. Her chariot is an empty hazelnut. Her wagoner a small, gray-coated gnat. And in this state, she gallops <laughs> night by night through lovers' brains. And then they dream of love. So, yeah, I mean, I thought both of him and John Leguizamo were in the better camp of actors here, but, like, didn't really blow me away. And I wanted to talk about John Leguizamo, too. Because, like, I feel like he's one of those actors who's supremely divisive. People either love him or totally hate him in every way. And what did y'all think of his performance in this movie? I loved it. I mean, I liked everything (laughs) in this movie. I think that it was, I guess, because Juliet's family is supposed to be Hispanic? Well, that's... Italian? That's my question. That's (laughs) That's a good question to ask. Did that come from the casting of John Leguizamo? And then they just decided they're Hispanic? Or, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Regardless, I thought it was a, a, a unique casting choice. And I thought he did a really good job. Because I think that before this, he was just known as being like wacky comedian guy. What about drawn among these heartless hinds? Turn thee, Benvolio, and look upon thy death. I do but keep the peace. Put up thy sword. Or manage it to part these men with me. Peace. Peace. I hate the word, as I hate hell, all Montagues, and thee. Bang, bang! Bang, bang! Bang! Yeah, so, I mean, I think I would have liked both of those performances more if I had the context for who these people are in relation to these families. Because mm. it obviously is the most yes. important aspect, really, of this story that the Montagues and the Capulets are fighting. And so it's like, I can get that parents hate each other. But then these gangs, why is there a Latino gang connected to, like, Juliet's family? Or, like, yeah, like, Paul Sorvino, that's her dad, right? 
Because he, well, he's Italian. Is he supposed to be like, yeah, is he supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was this like, like weirdly like, racially, because it's like the other is like very white, you know, Romeo and then Benvolio. Mm-hmm. Mercutio is black, obviously, but they have like this kind of like surfer dude thing. And so it almost seemed like that was a thing. Yes. And, and, and Chris, very specifically white coated. Like, I want to emphasize that. Mm-hmm. Like, Romeo is very specifically like white coated and. I don't know. It's like as uh, like Claire Danes is obviously white and can't get around that and doesn't like do an accent or anything like that. But like Paul Sorvino, especially, and I think John Leguizamo, like I, I guess unavoidably or whatever, they seem coded as non-white characters. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really like care too much about like casting. They had were casting Paul Sorvino and you know someone who's Italian heritage like as Latino like in the 90s like whatever but like it just was confusing like it just didn't make any sense to me that like or like I needed to know like what kind of business he ran it's all taken from Shakespeare but it doesn't seem like it was thought through in the context of this movie like why this gang cares about Paul Sorvino and his family John Leguizamo is Juliet's cousin but you don't understand what they're defending like and I know like in the original play that's kind of the point is that the rivalry is stupid and based on nothing but like in this version where you're reinterpreting it for like the modern world it needs to like have some kind of connection to reality so that we can just like forget about it and like enjoy the story and i was constantly trying to guess like what was going on it kind of the last note i had of something to discuss was I, I guess it's more about the kind of overall story of this and more in the lap of Shakespeare himself. I have notes for Shakespeare. <laughs> I've got notes. <laughs> I do ultimately think that Romeo and Juliet is the most bourgeois love fairy tale ever devised. <laughs> Especially now, like watching this and taking in this story as like a 36-year-old, I think this idolizes every single wrong and bad kind of attachment style in relationships that exists. And specifically Romeo and Juliet's romance and their attachment and their love is all based on codependency and acting out and trauma bonding and also literally like both play acting and then actually enacting a murder suicide act. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry, but literally everything about that teaches the wrong and the worst possible way to form a relationship. And yes, this is a classic tale. Yes, it will surely be taught forever because it's fucking Shakespeare. But it was like almost comically bad to me as an adult who's had to do work on myself after realizing for myself that I had very toxic relationships with people, especially growing up. I know it's weird to like come away with this about a fictional story, (laughs) but it really like came through to me how bad this story is as a story about love that we teach children to try to emulate and seek out in their lives. Do we? Yeah. I I think everything about the connection that these people have in this story has really very little to do with who they are as people and everything to do with the tragedy of the circumstance of their meeting that the story requires. But when you dig underneath that, I think the connection style and the 
actual relationship that they have with each other is incredibly unhealthy. It's not a rom-com. It's a tragedy. It's called, like, I think it's called <laughs> The Tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. It's a cautionary tale. Yeah. Fair enough. I would only put this wrinkle on it. I don't think the cautionary tale is cautioning us against the love that they have for each other. If there's any one thing that the story is not warning against, it's their love. In the context of this story, their love is the one good and true and holy thing. And what ruins it is the family's bitterness and their hatred and their fighting of one another. It's not the love. I guess my point is just like recognizing that their love is kind of fucked up too. Yeah, I don't think it's not recognizing that. I mean, I didn't I, I hmm. watch this and I think, yeah, that's what, that's the feeling you get when you get love at first sight. But I don't know, maybe if you're a child, you think that's amazing. But looking at it from an adult perspective, I'm like, oh yeah, they're, they're kids, you know, like they don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, Becky on the left, Seth on the right. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to try and uh, pop up in the middle for a second. In general, I don't think Romeo and Juliet is like Shakespeare's best work by a long shot. It's it's just never, and it's just never been, you know, my favorite of his stories. Mm. So there's that. I mean, it is the most iconic. It's the most well-known, the quotes. Everyone knows these quotes. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, I think a lot of the fault is with the interpretation and specifically this interpretation, which definitely like hypes up the romance angle. And I think Bos Lerman does a really bad job in the last mostly half of this movie because yeah i mean for one like it doesn't make any sense within the context of like modern times that it's like this was written in shakespeare times so the fact that people would get instantly married without knowing each other was something that happened a lot then you know a lot of times there were like arranged marriages and things like that where you didn't even meet, you know, necessarily. Like, it wasn't based on love. So this is meant to kind of be, you know, a contrast to maybe how these families would have married. You know, like, she would have married Paris, and it would have been this kind of arranged thing, because, you know, daughters were more like property. But I don't think that Baz Luhrmann, like, thinks how this would actually make any sense in modern days. That, like, that they meet, they get married um, in this kind of bizarre way. Instantly. (laughs) Which is not something that, like, 16-year-olds would do in the 90s. 90s, you know? And then I feel like he just got so lazy and just was like, I'm doing it literally. And then like, didn't in- bring any of the invention yeah. that he thought about for the beginning of this movie and didn't apply that to the end. Because for one, I mean, like the play is very operatic and like over the top and overwrought. As a piece of dramatic writing, it's not very satisfying. Like their plan is dumb. Like <laughs> it's very poor planning. It really is. So I do have notes for Shakespeare um, <laughs> that... Like, their little scheme is very poor planning. Um, There's a lot of room for error. So, Juliet uh, (laughs) drinks a poison of sorts, um, although not a fatal poison, poison. Um, that puts her asleep for like 24 hours. Yeah, what the, what's that bullshit? Where she's not breathing. Is it a roofie? Is it a roofie? It's not, she's not even breathing. Like her heart isn't beating. Mm-hmm. Clearly that yeah. would kill her, but okay. So she does that. And then as a way of getting out of marrying Paris, because her parents, for some reason, decide she's marrying him the next day. <laughs> Yeah. And he's mm-hmm. going to come arouse her in her bedroom. I don't know why her parents would decide that that was the best place for these two. You're supposed to sleep together after you're married, but whatever. So that's going to happen. And then she's going to get basically buried, <laughs> be laying in a 
a coffin and then Romeo will go, she'll wake up when Romeo gets there, I guess. Mm -hmm. But like, and so I'm going to send a note to Romeo so that he knows that this is the plan. That's the best way to communicate stuff. I'm like, why don't they just run away? Like, why do they need to do this? Like, what, how does Truly. her being fake dead? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> and so anyway, like in the play, it's whatever. It's fine. It's a play. It's theatrical. I think like it's fine. <laughs> but it's like, it's, it's in general, like, I know it's very hard to make this story work because of that kind of bonkers, you know, plan. But I just, I wish that he had like thought through and, you know, you're not going to change Shakespeare probably like especially the dialogue but I just wish that there was more thinking about like how this would actually play out in a modern sense what he has is he has like basically FedEx kills Romeo by not like delivering the mm-hmm. note <laughs> That's true. And in a modern one, it's like, maybe call Romeo. Like, this is a very important message. Right. Or, you know, get a, a receipt. Chris, like, to what you're saying, I think that the most that Baz Luhrmann thought it through was like, I'm going to have it set in this church that looks modern, and I'm going to lay out this shot that frames them at the top of the cross at the moment when they die. It seemed like what he thought through was just the visual Visual. framing of what it would look like in that moment, and nothing about what the characters would be going through or what the characters would even be feeling at that time. I watched the movie, you know, like at at one time speed (laughs) the whole way through one time. Which is really six times speed on Baz Luhrmann. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I watched, Mm -hmm. I actually watched seven movies all told, (laughs) but I rewatched it over again a little bit, like, you know, a couple of the different parts throughout and especially like near the end. And they like rush through the actual climactic parts of this story when Romeo was discovering her and thinks that Juliet is dead. All of that process of it that should be absolutely gut-wrenching, that should have us breaking down crying. It, it's like he like, Baslerman like gallops through that shit to get to the end of the movie. Yeah, it's, I mean, so yeah, some of the fault I think lies with the original play, but also, and that this is a particularly hard work to actually make really dramatic because it's so kind of cliche at this point and it is very kind of heightened. So difficult task, but I also think Boz Lerman was in no way up to that task, especially like the tragic element of it, like the whole back half of this. And like in the end, what you're supposed to be left with, I think, and this is to kind of what you were saying a little bit ago, Seth, like to me, it's not really about the romance it's not really supposed to be like this is ideal is like they got themselves killed but what it really is is that the parents and this feud and this stupid kind of fighting got their kids killed and i think there was just so much more opportunity for like the parents to be like business rivals and for this to be like you know sort of a like like modern kind of capitalism got their kids killed when they were focused on their business and trying to fuck over like the other family and these kids were like the cost and in the end and then that should feel tragic that's i think what the play is supposed to be and it's just totally missed it just it doesn't land at all because none of this whole back half of this feels rooted in any kind of sense or reality yeah and then like the closest they get to ever having a character who is in a position to kind of put it in that context is the the person who's like the police chief Mm -hmm. Mm. and the police chief is in like two or three scenes of this movie at most and and just literally is not a character 
he's just literally there to quite seriously yell exposition at all of us <laughs> about how like at, at the beginning of the movie <laughs> yelling at them not to fight each other and then like at the end of the movie yelling at the Montague and Capulet patriarchs respectively that like all of this is their fault but again that's not the same as storytelling mm-hmm. that's just like a stand-in that they use to say like oh y'all are the bad guys and everyone's dead this is a tragedy the end and again it was like it, it just kind of feels disappointing because I, I do feel like there's a way in which Baz Luhrmann's Williams Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet <laughs> is one uh-huh. of the more successful goes at this but even at that it's like it, there's so much that is clearly just left on the table that it, it's sad to me that a more talented thoughtful filmmaker wasn't there to pick that up and really really run with that yeah i want to end on i guess a slightly positive note just to be nice to becky Mm -hmm, Um, thanks (laughs) (laughs) but just one more thing that i liked still it's about that party scene but the way that they're dressed as a knight and an angel just really is such a great visual way to kind of like Mm -hmm. put these characters who are set like the iconic like lovers of all time um you know, put them in this like really kind of cliche thing, but that actually like visually, I think really works. So um, that's something that he did well. Good job, Boz, on that costume. <laughs> Thanks for yeah, no, it, but that that was also like another image of it that really stuck with me, and it was you know one of the first images of it that I ever saw because I I'm, I know that all of those scenes are all throughout the trailer. You know, like when they're in those costumes specifically. And I mean, like, I remember friends of mine dressing for Halloween, like, as a knight and dressing with the fucking angel wings at at least a couple years of junior junior high dances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are some images from it that still stick with me and where I do think they did a thoughtful and interesting and creative job of placing them in that world. That's nice of you to say. <laughs> This is is one instance where I feel like the the remote recording is missing something because we can't be there to like physically hug Becky and (laughs) give her strength during this trying time. Oh, I just assumed she was drinking poison right now. (laughs) I'm not not drinking poison. There have been many Shakespearean adaptations before and after this movie. So I don't think we can pinpoint this movie as like a catalyst for like a Shakespeare explosion at the movies. (laughs) But um, some of the notable ones that came right after are O, which is an adaptation of Othello, Mm -hmm. 10 Things I Hate About You, and Shakespeare in Love. Does that count? Oh, definitely it does. Oh, absolutely. Well, it definitely, it kicked off, I think, the teeny, like, teen reinterpretations. Like, I think O was another modern reinterpretation. So I think it did do that. It might not have been the very first of those, but at least the success of this, because this was a huge hit, definitely, like, laid the way for some of those. Chris, I think you're exactly right. It it was incredibly stylistically influential on a lot of movies that came soon after. And for whatever, I don't know why, but it reminds me of that, what was that Drew Barrymore Cinderella movie? Ever after. Ever after. Was that after this? Mm-hmm. It was ever yes. after this. Yeah. yeah. No, see, Ever After with Drew Barrymore was like one of the other things it this movie like instantly reminded me of. I feel like this was a very influential movie. And I feel like almost all of Boz Lerman's movies have been very weirdly influential. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this, it, you know, obviously this was not at all the first you know, Shakespearean adaptation. But I absolutely feel like it was a huge trendsetter in the 90s for a way to both approach old material and 
a way to, uh, you know, juxtapose older material in a more modern seeming setting. Yeah. And we talked about in the prom com thing, like there were a lot of the teen movies were based Mm -hmm. around Shakespeare plots. And so I think the success of Mm -hmm. this also led people to feel like it was okay to do other kinds of things with Shakespeare. Totally. And that's all the iambic pentameter we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode... Part two of our Boz Spectacular Spectacular will be covering Moulin Rouge. Because we can, can, can. (laughs) (laughs) And you can, can, can hear that next time on When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, you can subscribe to us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your fine podcast product. And please contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so that we can continue making episodes of this show. I have been Seth. I'm Chris. A glooming piece this podcast episode with it brings. The sun for sorrow will not show his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. For never was a story of more woe, according to Chris and Seth, than this of Juliet and her Romeo, as directed by Baz Luhrmann. And I'm Becky. (laughs) Parting is such sweet sorrow. I would die for you. A song, a song to keep us warm. There, such a chill, such a chill.